This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me today is Will Bushman. Hi, Sam. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good. You have any New Year's resolutions this year coming into the New Year? do not. Nothing official. I chose not to. Oh, so you're one of those. I am one of those. Are you anti them? I'm not anti them. I've got kids. All my kids are doing them. So I've got Caleb, who's now uh, like my oldest son, is totally into fitness, weightlifting. He's starting to look really good. Last night, I came back from a bike ride, and he was like doing sprints up and down the road, huffing and puffing. Like He's at that stage of teenage boyhood. Yeah. Well, Cast and Smiths don't do sprints up (laughs) and down the road. Like Even my brother's like, we just, that was not in our cards. But he's like all in, so I'm kind of proud of him. And Leah had a kind of a random one where it was like, I want to learn how to cook. So she's been with Laura in the kitchen kind of figuring out like, you know, walking through mashed potatoes or barbecue chicken cool. or, and she's just loving it, doing a great job. She's always been the the household smoothie maker. Which, oh, so she's up in her game a little bit. Yeah, she, she her resolution does not include cleaning mm. <laughs> from cooking. Or after the smoothies, but for a long time, like she makes really amazing uh, peanut butter banana smoothies for the kids. Okay. Like she's 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 got that going on. She just loves it. So I'm not anti resolutions, but it's it's fun to watch other people fail. Yeah, like, have a good time. <laughs> I'd, I'd rather I'd rather them learn. For I did notice my one weeks. exercise class in the new year was much more packed than normal, Ugh. and there was a little bit of resentment. But then I was reminded, like, no, everyone. <laughs> They give them an opportunity to yes. fail. <laughs> it won't be like this in February, Will, so just relax. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like it really I I saw some like a somebody sent me a social media link or something where somebody shows up at a, a gym and like it's just pandemonium and I'd never thought about it before. It's kind of funny to think about. So anyway, that's always the New Year's resolution. That's what that should be <laughs> my New Year's resolution. But anyway, moving right along. So we have been in a study on the book of Exodus. We're jumping into chapter 17 today, and it really has two pretty famous stories. I don't know how famous they are. They're pretty famous, but both of them are really, really wonderful at pointing our minds and our hearts toward Christ and what he's done for us. One of them, the New Testament just expressly says, this was really about Jesus. It's pointing you to Jesus. And the other one, the New Testament doesn't point to, but it's pretty obvious when you put it all together, that God is ordaining these stories to point you to the gospel. And that for some people, like there's a lot of people who look at these echoes that are like pointing to Jesus and and it like, it almost bothers them. Like, why is it like that? It's yeah. too perfect. But this is because we we tend to view God and we tend to view our existence as though God is, you know, like a logistics coordinator. Yeah. And, and the Bible does not allow you to just treat God like, you know, he's, he's the daily planner and a scientist up there and everything's just tinkering around. 
first and foremost, like before all that, God is an author. Like it, the Bible calls him the author of our salvation. You know, he's, it compares all of redemptive history as writing, you know, at the end of all time, he's opening the the seals that are on the scrolls because even the redemptive, the, the finalities being presented to us, like it's a story that needs to be unlocked because it's already been written. Now it just needs to happen. And so when you see redemptive history as though God is telling a story and you understand that he's sovereign over all of this, then when you read the story, you begin to see the heart of God and what he's really excited about because it shows up in every story. Like it just again and again and again, you start seeing echoes of Jesus and the gospel in all these stories. And more than making you think, wait a minute, this is too perfect. What it should drive your mind to think is, holy cow, and like every, they're not noticing this. They don't know the story yeah. of Jesus yet. And yet these stories are happening in a way that is anticipating the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ 1,400 years before he's even born. And it should tell us that the story of the gospel is God's heartbeat from the foundations of Scripture, and every story that then comes out is pointing to what he's most excited about, which is the moment that he comes into the world as the hero to purchase you so that you can be with him forever. This is a reflection of his love. And I just think that's cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, because it is modern arrogance that says, oh, God's like, oh, he got to a part of the story. He's like, oh, I got to add this because it happened hundreds and I got to prove to these people in the future that all this checks out. No, he's doing it just like you said. The echoes are just the outliving of who he is. Yeah, so th- like when we went through the, the eras of rationalism and empiricism that came out of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment gave us a lot of really good things. But one of the things that was was really bad about the Enlightenment is it started focusing on the how. Like, how could this happen? How is this possible? By the laws of all natural things that I can look at and measure and all that stuff, how would this happen? And so we come to the Bible with how being the primary question, and you cannot read it like that because our God cares far more about the why. Mm. And so when you come to the why, you're like, okay, we serve a God of miracles who does things that are pretty phenomenal. We're going to come across a couple of them today that make no sense with a natural explanation. But if there's a why behind why God ordains that water would come from a rock or why a military battle is won the way that this one is going to be won, and you see the why is ultimately pointing to Jesus, you're like, oh, okay, well, then the how doesn't matter because he's God and he can do it however he wants. Exactly. But he wants to show us the why. The why is the most important. And in our modern culture, we've lost that. We don't see God. We don't see the sovereign. We don't see all of this as some grand story. Some And, and the funny thing is we, we're a culture that wants to say that we're all about the arts, mm. but we will not let God be a storyteller. No. We won't let him be an artist or an author, which if we're made in his image and we're made to long for beauty, why would we expect anything less from our God? It's very true. So anyway, jumping in to chapter 17, just to, to catch you up, kind of the big bullet points, Moses has led the Israelites across the Red Sea. God has parted the waters they've gone through. God destroys the Egyptian army. They're wandering out in the wilderness. They come, they're thirsty for three days. They haven't gotten water. God, God transforms these bitter waters at Marah into sweet waters and saves the people after they've been like, why did you bring us out here? Yeah. Then they're like, we don't have any food. And they're grumbling about food. And so in the last chapter, chapter 16, God has given the manna, these honey wafers. He's given them a quail, great protein. 
He's provided for them in the middle of the wilderness where there's no other source of provision to teach them that they can rely on him. And so one of the things that you're going to pick up when we get into these wilderness chapters, if you haven't already, is every time there's the slightest <laughs> hardship or, or worry, their go-to is not to say, man, we really need to pray, but we trust God's goodness. Mm. That's not them. <laughs> their, their go-to is, you're trying to kill us. You've messed all this up. We really hate you, and we think you're bad. Like, that's what they continually throw Moses under that accusation. Yeah, Moses gets hit every time with it. Mm-hmm. And going back, like, so just in our way back machine, if you're Moses and you're going back before the plagues, remember when he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, I'm increasing their labor. Back then they were like, may God bring judgment upon you, Moses. So they hated him then. Then you get to the Red Sea and they're like, you're trying to kill us. And they hate Moses then. Then you get on the other side and they're, they're complaining to him about the manna and they're, they're after him. They never say, hey, you know what? Like, you really came through, Moses. Thanks so much. We're sorry. You never get that. And yet, one of the things that's remarkable about Moses is you have, he's, he's shepherding people who are constantly trying to tear him down. Mm who want him judged, who make crazy accusations against him. And yet when you'll, you'll see in the, in the book of Numbers, when God finally has had it with these people and God's anger begins to boil up, what does Moses say? Like, you can blot me out for their sake. And this guy, like, it's not just that he puts up with it, because you can read these stories like, oh, they're grumbling again, yeah. and Moses, gosh, he just puts up with these people. It's amazing that he doesn't punch them right in the face, you know. But it's like, no, I'm, I'm willing to give up my spot in the Lamb's book of life for these people. That's phenomenal. Because I'm trying to think, like, if, if our flock at Rio, <laughs> I'm just, it's warning, dangerous. warning. Like, if it was this perpetually mean mm-hmm. and cruel and there was no trust and you were always doubting and always coming after and always attributing the worst motives... Like at some point, I'm like, I need a new calling. Like yeah. this is just, this is rough. And Moses never does. He's, he's a remarkable shepherd. This, this is a true man of God. Yeah, I guess I always thought of Moses, like, I guess before we've been doing it on this podcast, is more triumphant. Like mm-hmm. everything was these huge victories because he has these amazing, huge victories. And you kind of only give him those like in the table of contents version of his life. Like, oh, the plagues, pretty awesome. Mm-hmm, sure. Oh, the Red Sea crossing, pretty awesome. But in between a lot of those things, there's a lot of grumbling, a lot of just hate and just taking it day in and day out. And like you said, not being changed, made bitter, made hard towards the people. But even, like you said, as it goes, like growing in love for them. Yeah, he sees them for how easily they're spooked. Mm -hmm. He sees them for how weak and, and easily prone to temptation they are. And he's always standing in the gap for them because he he loves them in spite of all their frailties. Um, and that's just, it's remarkable. And so we start verse se- or chapter 17, and it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. We talked about that the, the last time. And they move on by stages, and the book of Numbers actually tells you the names of the places where they stop along the way. We're not, it doesn't get into that in Exodus. So it says, And they did this according to the commandment of the Lord. So remember, they're following the pillar. They're following Moses. They're being obedient. There's no rebellion. There's no, hey, let's go off on our own way. 
It says they camped at Rephidim, which, by the way, is a Hebrew word that means place of rest. So there's some irony in this because it's not going to feel very restful. But there was no water for the people to drink. Oh, no. So here we go again. Yeah. Like for three days, the first days that you're coming through the Red Sea, it's like, where are we going to find water? Then you get the manna. Where are we going to find food? Now they're back to where are we going to find water? And what's an interesting thing, and the Bible is not, it's not an accident that it does this, because if there was ever a kind of a punch in the face of the prosperity gospel, the Bible is always challenging you to recognize these sorts of things. Why are they in the middle of the wilderness where there is no natural water, no springs, no rivers? It says because they were following, they moved on according to the commandment of the Lord, and now they're in a place with no water. Yeah, they were obedient, and that yeah. led them there. So, like that—that's really helpful in the life of a Christian. Like, it make mm. it might make you wonder, like, God, I don't, I don't like what you're doing. Yeah. But listen to what it, you're obedient, and you're at a place where there's no water, where you're wondering where the provision is going to come from. And I think every Christian can relate to that, where it's like, all right, like I feel, you know, maybe imperfectly. But man, I feel like I'm following after and I'm in this season where I'm not seeing how all this is going to measure up and how it's going to work out. Like, God, how are you going to do this? I'm obedient and you've thrown me in the midst of this storm. And there can be resentment that's building, but the Bible comes along and it doesn't hide that. Yeah, You know, very honest, like, hey, they followed. They were obedient and now they're in a place with no water. And so God one is going to to bring them and what it's like he's putting them through like spiritual boot camp where he's <laughs> saying i want you to see that every time that you question or doubt i'm going to provide for you hmm. and it's going to make a bigger impression when you reach a point no but you know they're not dying of of dehydration but they're questioning like what are we going to do what are we going to do and so it says therefore the people what do they do brought it to moses <laughs> oh boy Thanks so much for coming. Uh, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And so Moses is always quick to be like, it wasn't me. Like, you, you go talk to God. Like, I don't, I don't know what he's doing. Why do they not go directly to God? Why do you think? I don't know. I, I think they don't have a relationship with him. Yeah, I guess I didn't want to say it that blankly, but yeah. I mean, when you get to Sinai, for instance, and the Lord comes down on the mountain, and they'd had warnings not to touch the mountain, but they're like, get him away from us or we're going to die. Like, they, they have a relationship with God that's driven by, we know you're a provider and we know you're a punisher, hmm. but we haven't yet learned to trust that you're a covenantally faithful God who loves us and would suffer for us and to enter into our suffering with us, right? They don't trust him. They know he provides. They're constantly asking him to provide. And they know that he's fierce and mighty. They know he can punish. They've seen what he's done to Egypt. Yeah. But they haven't reached that point where they say, you know what? Like, you're the God of our fathers. And we remember how you treated Abraham and how you were personal with Isaac and Jacob they have not reached that level yet. And Moses, remember, is learning this as he goes. When he was off in, you know, in Sinai with his father-in-law, he was, he'd kind of walked away from the faith, it seems. And it's not until God kind of comes along and says, no, 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 I'm going to walk with you through some challenges. I'm going to, I'm going to stretch you. You're going to, I'm going to put you in really uncomfortable positions. That's what makes faith 
become beautiful and mature, and they haven't they haven't had long enough to walk with God. Yeah, I guess Moses had that personal experience of the burning bush and those moments of direction directly from God during the plague cycle. So that makes mm-hmm. a lot more sense that he's connected to him in a different way. Yeah, and I mean, part of that is you got to think God is giving Moses, in some sense, the authority to call the plague down yeah, and then to end the plague with his supplications and prayers. Like, So he has seen God's faithfulness to his word. The others are experiencing it through Moses. Yeah, I guess they've only seen Moses act, so they're thinking, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, okay, God, yeah, God likes him. <laughs> yeah, like we got to go, th- God went through him, so we're going to go through him. Yeah, so so I don't have that personal relationship. It's all through Moses. So anyway, Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. So this isn't like a big ask. It's not like, oh, stupid people wanting to drink water. You're like, no, this is a real need. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? First, they still have livestock. Like if if you're dehydrating and you are worried about not having enough water to survive, are you still going to be giving water to your cow? I would not be, no. They're still giving water to the cows, which means they're not quite yet in the dire situation, but they see the writing on the wall the same way they did with the manna, like uh, we're we're running out of resources here. What are we yeah, going to do? They're doing the math. They're doing the math, and so now they're panicking. And so the other thing that's in this is they're accusing Moses of wanting to do to them. You brought us out of Egypt to kill us, our children, and our livestock. Which that's worse than God did to the Egyptians, right? God didn't kill everyone. He and he of the firstborn, he took one. And the livestock, and now they're coming to Moses and being like, you want to kill all of us and our livestock. like, Yeah, and the trickery of delivering somebody just to kill them in the end is, is grosser. Right? Yeah. That's, and it would make Moses really sadistic. Like, that's yeah, pretty. That would be a horror movie, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, let, me, let me bring you out of your slavery, get you all to myself so I can watch you die in misery. But think about what that says about how they see Moses. And Te- think about. Terribly. But think about how that would be to be Moses. Like you've given up everything for the sake of these people and you want to love them. You want them to flourish and they just keep you at arm's length. As like, I, I just really sympathize with Moses and he, just a straight up he had a hard life and the numbers of the game, mm-hmm. you know, Mo, Moses, one guy and there's the whole congregation hates this guy. Yeah. So day in and day out, every comment, it yeah. doesn't end. Yeah, and more often than not, when Aaron or Miriam do speak up, family, it's like, oh, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is going to get worse. So it's like he's on an island, he's, and when we get a couple of chapters down the road, when he gets to his father-in-law, the father-in-law is going to give him some really brilliant advice as to how to to spread the burden around, uh, which is really instructive for the church. And so verse 4, Moses then cried to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. So it's not just complaining. Like yeah. he's worried about going outside of his tent. Like, is this going to be the moment where the mutiny happens and these people are so irate with me that they're right on the verge of killing me? And you just start thinking like, okay, step back. This is a prophet who knows what it's like in the, in the Jesus-like sense of things. Like somebody who Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, how long 
I long to gather you like a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he's weeping over Jerusalem. He so wants to be with us, and yet everyone hates him. You know, it's, it's a weird thing that runs through the scriptures that when you come across the most faithful and impactful prophets of the Lord and even the Lord himself, this is the reaction that they get. You know, Jesus himself says, you know, talking to the Israelites when he comes, you, you stone and kill the prophets that are sent to you. So it's like whenever God comes and really speaks powerfully to his people, more often than not, they're met with vitriol by their own people. And there's something, there's something to be said for that. And there's something in us that needs to, to check ourselves and yep. to, to really want to be gracious. And if somebody has a hard truth to not just respond with pride and arrogance and say, you're dumb and I hate you, but to really take it into consideration and measure it against where you're at. So Moses goes to God and says, they're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people. So this, that's not a small ask, right? Hey, God, they're, they're like ready to kill me. All right, well, I want you to go walk in front of all of them. Yeah, it's only one loose cannon you need. At that <laughs> right? Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. This is, this is Sinai. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, which the two words mean temptation, and the other one means quarreling, because that's, that's what's going on at the place. And he says, they called it Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so they, they get into the situation, and it's like really the people saying, is God for us or against us? Yeah. Is he going to show up? Does he really care about us? I mean, they're, they're quick to say Moses doesn't. You know, Moses wants us dead, but is the Lord going to show up or not? And so how does this story point us to, to Jesus, Will? I don't know. I'm still thinking about prophets and how the, the bad rap they get. Yeah. I mean, can you think of exceptions? Like, there's not a whole lot of prophets where people are like, maybe John the Baptist for a season, but then he loses his head, you know, when he takes the politically unpopular position. Yeah, he's in jail for a while, too. Correct. So old John is not making the good list. But, you know, Jeremiah's the weeping prophet. Ezekiel was seen as a weirdo. Daniel's in exile, you know. Nobody, Elijah, yeah. nobody likes what the prophets have to say, you know, because the prophets call strikes and balls on everyone, <laughs> you know. It's, you know... My people are, are really wicked, says the Lord. Oh, hooray, come on over for tea. You know, or God's going to bring judgment. Or God, you know, it's they're bringing hard truths. Like, we, we live in a culture right now that is so desperately in need of people to tell the truth. Yeah. Hard truths, because there's a lot of hard truths. The train is on the tracks coming at us in a lot of ways. And it's really easy to go, la, 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 la. And if you're a prophet, people are like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. And you'll be unpopular if you come out and speak truth. But every single Christian is called to those three offices of prophet, priest, and king. You've heard that before? Yeah. Every single Christian is a priest, a mediator that wants to bring other people to God. Every single Christian is a king, an ambassador of the royal family of Christ. You're a 
royal nation, Jesus says, of the church. And lastly, every single Christian is a prophet. What's that mean? That doesn't mean predicting the future. Yeah. It means bringing the word of God to bear on all of life. You're, you're preaching the word, and sometimes that word is not easy for the culture to hear, and you become really unpopular if you're faithful in those roles. Yeah, because the words of Jesus himself weren't accepted. No. Like, they weren't great to hear. If you were sitting there and you heard the Beatitudes, their Sermon on the Mount, you're not like, hey, I really like this guy. Yeah. Be ye therefore perfect. All right, I'm, I'm signing up there, yeah. you know. Walk away from everything. Carry your cross. Like, And the thing about Jesus is when he's there, I mean, it's no different than today. You had all these political groups. You had the, the Zealots. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You had the Essenes. You had the Herodians. And every single group hates him. Yeah. Because he blows up all their categories. And that's when, when you know that you've come across a real prophet is he makes everyone uncomfortable for some reason or another. Because in some reason or another, we need to be conformed into the image of Christ because we haven't fully arrived. There are aspects of what I believe and what I do that could use some confrontation, use some, you know, calling me to the image of the Lord. I'm not there. So prophets are going to make me uncomfortable because there's things I'm really comfortable with that the Lord is not. Yeah. And that should be so more normal for us because that scripture should be doing that in our lives naturally, just Mm -hmm. personally. Yeah. But we also live in a culture where it's like hearing anything that goes against what we want or how we've identified ourselves. Well, no. Oh, you've hurt my feelings. You're hateful. And we live in that culture where we can't hear anything hard. But the scripture says the the wounds of a friend are faithful. Mm. Like they don't wound you to hurt you. They wound you to keep you from a path of destruction. And that, we've totally lost our ability to receive hard words without tearing down messengers. Yeah. So, so how does this whole story point to the gospel? Well, we're told when you get to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that the, the rock that's spewing forth water in the wilderness, I mean, you got to think about that. Like the source of life coming from a rock, it just seems utterly impossible. And then the New Testament comes along, 1 Corinthians 10, and we're told, that Jesus was the spiritual rock in the wilderness that provides life for the people. And there's, there's a story, there's actually a pretty beautiful story, and maybe this will be weird. This is, this is something that I've, I'm coming into on the fly, so measure it against the scriptures. <laughs> but this staff, that's Aaron's staff, tells quite a number of stories that have echoes of the gospel to them. And so, the first time that Aaron's staff makes an appearance that, that I think the first time makes an appearance is the first plague. You remember what happens there? He takes the staff, he raises it over the Nile, and then he strikes the water, and all of the, the water turns to blood, which is going to be the first miracle of Jesus. And it's like, you know, water that brings life, well, no, blood. Water that brings cleansing, well, no, the blood. And it's like he's transforming the water into blood. So that's the first thing that this staff does. So let's, let's run through the biography of Aaron's staff. The next time you see Aaron's staff in action, it's the third plague. And it's the plague where you have lice that goes all over Egypt. But what happens there? They're, they're told, Aaron's told to take his staff and to strike the earth. And we're told that the dust of the ground became crawling lice or gnats, depending on which translation you're using. 
It's, it means small bucks anyway. But what is that? What is that? Here you have this staff that transforms dust to living creatures. Has mm. that ever happened before? Yeah. I mean, that's creation. That's the creation of man. And by the way, when God, when God strikes it, these living creatures then go and bring punishment <laughs> upon Pharaoh. They bring Egypt to stop its idolatrous worship, if you remember the plagues episode. So the second time, okay, dust becoming living things. So God does that in creation. You fast forward, and it's going to be the staff that's lifted over the Red Sea that brings the parting. It brings a new beginning. It brings their their escape out of the land of death. And so that is also this great triumph, which is resurrection-minded. Then here you find the staff, and what's it doing? It's striking a rock, which supernaturally then gushes forth with this overwhelming amount of water to give sustenance to this many people. It's pretty amazing. And you fast forward in the, in the scriptures, you get to the book of Numbers, and you're going to have all these Israelites that are professional grumblers, right? That, and they're like, Man, we don't like Aaron. Aaron is a terrible high priest. I, we don't like him. We want another high priest. And they all the tribes come with their own candidate, right? Like, oh, we like this guy. We like this guy. And God finally says, okay, Moses, we're going to have a contest. Everybody, you know, pick a guy, get your staff from that guy, leave it outside the tabernacle. And the one that I want to be my high priest in the morning, his staff will supernaturally come to life because they're all dead sticks. I mean, this is, this is bizarre. It's what a staff is, a dead right, stick. Dead stick, but it's going to blossom. It's going to have almond blossoms all over it. It's going to come to life. And so next morning, sure enough, Aaron's rod has got almond blossoms all over it. And it's like God is saying, hey, yeah, he might be faulty. <laughs> he might be really flawed, but I bring the power of resurrection and there's that staff again. And so then you have, you know, and by the way, God then says, I want this rod to be in the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. And he says, I want this kept before Israel as a warning to rebels, okay? Now, we're going to fast forward to the end of Moses' life and, and give kind of a spoiler alert, but this same staff comes in. It says the staff of God when God is going to repeat the miracle that we just read where he's going to bring water from a rock again. He, sell, he tells Moses not to strike the rock in the future instance. He says, I want you to speak to it. Hmm. And Moses goes, he's so frustrated with the people at that time that he strikes the rock twice and says, you rebels, look what I've done for you. Here's water. And so the staff was meant to be a warning to rebels. rebels. And then what does Moses do? He takes the staff, he, he rebels against God by striking rather than speaking because he wants the glory and the power. And then he says, you rebels. And that is the action that God says, okay, you're not going to go into the promised land hmm. because you rebelled against me. And so how do we make sense of that? Because Moses is a faithful guy. We don't like that at all. Like, dude, he give him a mulligan. This yeah. guy's been through a lot. Give him a warning at least. But what was Moses' big failure? Like God says, this staff is going to go in my home and it's going to be a symbol to warn against rebellion and Moses grabs the stick and says, yeah, you rebels. Hmm. He didn't identify 
on the side of the rebels. He didn't identify on the side of the sinners. In that moment, he takes on this self-righteous standard of judgment where he's like, yeah, you rebels. And God says, whoa, you rebelled. Yeah. Now you're going to share in their fate. It's going to be the next generation that comes into the promised land, but you're going to sit this one out, Moses, which is a warning against self-righteous, hypocritical shepherding. Yeah to where you cannot identify with the weaknesses of your people. I think that's what God's doing. But the story of that staff is woven into all these major moments. And it what like when you think about it, it brings life to the dust. It brings makes water to blood, which then cleanses and brings life. It's it brings deliverance at the Red Sea. It's bringing water from the rock. And even, by the way, I love the fact that in Moses' rebellion and disobedience, God doesn't say, oh, that's it. The people don't get water. Mm. He still rewards the people with water because he's faithful, and then he deals with Moses and Aaron separately, um, which is just interesting that that staff is involved in so many things. Yeah, because you see it in all those things, but you didn't. once you put the list together completely, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. well. But w- what I love about it is why would God want that staff as one of very few things that's in the place where his glory dwells. Well, it brings life to the dust. It's a dead stick that supernaturally comes to life. It's what brought deliverance at the Red Sea. It's what initiated the plagues that will redeem his people. And it's like God, it puts it in there because he's like, this had so much symbolism in my redemption of my people. And it's constantly pointing to resurrection and mercy and forgiveness. Um, and ironically, at the end, it becomes a staff of judgment because Moses does not, forgets his own need of mercy. Yeah, I had a lot of questions about God kicking Moses out for that, so that's helpful. It's rough. Yeah. I, I do not like that God did that to Moses. It used to really bother me. Um, one of the most faithful men in all of Scripture is Moses. Yeah. Bar none. This guy is amazing. And one of the most amazing things that he does, like when you, when you have the moments where Moses is like, I'll be blotted out for them. You're like, how? Like, how do you get to the point where somebody, like you've got a people that are just serially abusing you and you still want to die from it. It's so Christ-like. It's so hard in our flesh to be like that. But I think perhaps even more amazing about Moses's faith is like, okay, the people are turning on me, but I still have God's faithfulness. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, I still have the people turning on me. And now God has said, you're not going in. Yeah, What you've been waiting for, what you've been working towards. Like that had to have been totally, totally gutting. And so at that moment, what is Moses' response? Because what would you you be tempted to do? I'd be pretty mad at God. You'd be mad at God. And the people. I'd take that staff and probably go irate. (laughs) For real. But it's like, are you going to go, you know what? Like, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore, God. Find another guy. Yeah. He doesn't do that. You know what he does? How long is he alive after that? After that moment? At the end? I I always got the idea that that's like right at the end of his life. Yeah. Like, getting, seems like. getting to the last sermons of Deuteronomy and, and you know, because what he does is amazing. He goes to Joshua and he says, hey, Joshua, you're going to take the mantle and I'm going to pray that God is with you the same way he's been with me. Mm. Lead these people well. 
be strong, be courageous. He doesn't say, I'm taking my football and going home because you didn't give me what I deserve, which is my response. Like I get mad at God for Moses. (laughs) Moses' response is, God has been so good to me and I totally understand his decision and I'm still going to carry out his will with what I have left. But if you're the one that he has chosen to go into the promised land, he's God and I'm okay with that. And then God rewards him because Moses dies on Mount Nebo looking into the promised land and you think, oh, you know, that's sad. He never, never got to step foot in there, but he does. Do you know where? No, honestly. The Mount of Transfiguration. So when Jesus is coming in and he is bringing about the greater kingdom, because that was just that was just a copy and a shadow of what the ultimate was going to be with Jesus, right? Yeah. I mean, Joshua doesn't bring peace and to the land. He doesn't bring glory. There's a lot of violence. A lot of violence, a lot of conquest. But Jesus is coming to bring a far greater kingdom. And when he goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, he brings two prophets that are in glory with him that the apostles are marveling at. And it's Moses, one of the guys that we've talked about that's rejected, who goes through years and years and decades upon decades of rejection and hardship. And then to be left on Mount Nebo faithfully saying, you know, go get it guys. Like I'm, I'm still with you, even though this hurts. Mm -hmm. And then he gets honored on the Mount of Transfiguration at the high point of Christ's ministry And the apostles were like, oh, you need a tabernacle. You know, like he's honored that much. And Elijah, who felt all alone, gets to see the glorious moment where the Messiah comes and is revealed in all of his glory. And so God honors Moses. Jesus will honor Moses. So if you're out there getting hung up on the fact that God left Moses out of the promised land, well, for a while. <laughs> and when when glory came, Moses made it into a far better promised land. But I love his humility to be able to say, you know what, God, you're God and I'm not. So if you would be better served by me relinquishing the reins to Joshua and never getting to see what I've longed to see with my lifetime, I'll see it eventually. Mm. It might not just be with this particular life. It might be with the one to come. And that's cool. That's an encouragement. That guy's amazing. All right. So before we move on from the the water from the rock miracle, this is a pattern that God has all throughout scripture that wherever you find the presence of God, you also find like a river of life that's coming forth. So if you go back to paradise at the Garden of Eden, what happens? You have a mountain of Eden where this headwater, this wellspring comes and it divides into four rivers and it brings life to the ends of the earth. Well, fast forward to Revelation. At the end of the story of Scripture, you have the throne of God uh, in heaven and from the throne comes the river of life that brings life to the ends of the nations. Well, all throughout the prophets that are going to come after Moses, they talk about how there is going to be a river that's established in the Messianic age when the Messiah comes and this river is going to flow forth from Jerusalem and it's going to go to the east and to the west and it's going to bring life to the nations. Well, that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. But even when Christ comes, do you remember what he says in in John chapter 7 where he talks about that if we come to him, that he will create in us wellsprings of living water that well up to eternal life and go out from us. And what he's saying in some sense is like, we're going to be the rocks in the wilderness 
that are going to bring forth supernatural waters to bring life to people. But the greatest fulfillment of this is Christ himself. And it's actually done so in a manner that kind of brings our minds and our imaginations back to that rock that was in the wilderness. So when Jesus goes to the cross and he gives his life and the Roman soldiers are at the foot of the cross and they're trying to make sure that these people on the crosses are dead, one Roman soldier takes a spear. Now, what does that look like? It, it looks like a big, long wooden stick, like a staff. And what does he do with it? He strikes the side of Christ, very similar to what you would expect when Moses strikes the rock. And what comes forth out of Christ is described as being supernatural by by John. A, a stream of blood mingled with water flows from the side of Christ. And that is is symbolizing the fact that from this wound, from this being stricken, Jesus is giving forth this flow that is going to bring life to the corners of the earth. And so when when Paul talks about how Christ is the spiritual rock that Moses and the Israelites had in the wilderness, it's ultimately pointing to this moment when Christ is the one who is struck and from him flows the source of life to the world. It's a pretty beautiful picture. Uh, All of this was anticipated with Moses in the wilderness 1,400 years before Jesus is even born. But I love this story, and God is absolutely ordaining it to point our minds to Christ and what he is going to do. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, so then we get to, to the second story in this chapter, which is just really interesting, and it feels like a, an aside. It's this quick story of a battle. So they're, they're coming out of Egypt, and if you know geography, you have the Amalekites. What? No one's going to know this geography. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your Bible has a map, it might show you this. So the Amalekites are like south of what we would consider Israel. You have all these ites that are surrounding the promised land that are actually the descendants of Esau and Ishmael. So they're like long lost relatives, right? So the Amalekites actually come out of the line of Esau, Jacob's brother. And so we're told then Amalek, which is the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So they're they're at the place of rest, (laughs) which is what that word means. And here come the Amalekites, which is a really wicked, wicked tribe. And so we're given a little bit of context in, in the book of Deuteronomy that describes this a little bit better in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. It says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. And so just so you understand a little bit more about how this battle goes, you've got this massive number of Israelites that's coming out of Egypt. You've got the pillar up front and it's trucking along and you've got the leaders and the healthy and the cattle and everybody else and they're keeping, but you've got the elderly, you've got children, you've got parents, you've got, you know, the kid that is having a meltdown or whatever, and they're all in the back. And so the Amalekites are so nasty 
that rather than going and, and having any kind of a fair fight, they're picking off the ones at the end and they're going and stealing from them and raiding anything that's on the back end without any defense. The vulnerable people, right? And so they, they've been picking at Israel. And so finally, Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men to go out and fight with Amalek. Like we're tired of all the ambushes, the way that they're targeting our weak. And so Joshua comes comes into the picture. This is the first time in, in all the scriptures that you meet Joshua. Uh, brand new character. And what's interesting, like we've talked about how the story of Moses and Joshua are told in a way that's like our whole picture of salvation, you know, coming out mm-hmm. of death and bondage, blood slain, baptism, the wandering, and then the promised land. Joshua comes into that story. And what's interesting is Jesus and the, the Greek name Yeshua is it's it's the same name as Joshua, the exact same name. So if you go into the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Joshua and Jesus have the same name. It's it's the same name. And so he's going to be the one who will ultimately deliver them into the promised land as is, well, Jesus, right? And so he gives instructions to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now, this is something they've never done. They've never had to fight. They've never had to stand. They're they're coming out of slavery their whole lives for centuries. Their families have been taught to cower, to submit, to surrender and now God has got them in a place where they have to fight, where they, where they have to stand for themselves in some sense. And so Moses says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God, gee, there it is again, in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now listen to this, because this this is where the the really kooky, miraculous, supernatural element of the story comes. It says, whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Moses and her, so you have to imagine this. So give yourself a, they're on top of a hill. You'll see where I'm going with this. They have victory. Joshua is fighting the battles, and they have victory so long as Moses' hands are lifted up. But he gets tired, and so two other guys have to come on either side of him, and they're holding his arms out as he's holding the wooden staff. And when that is happening, his people have victory. Whenever he held up his hands, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, on one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And so it's such a clear picture of, of two things that are meant to be driven home. Like, and that day, what would the Israelites have learned? To trust Moses? Well, to trust Moses. But what is Moses doing? Why is he lifting his hands? Oh, he's praying. He's praying. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, this is a story that teaches us that there, God will bring the victory if his people are faithful to pray, to lift their hands to the skies and to recognize this battle does not belong to me, that favor in this battle comes to the Lord I just need to lift my hands. 
I mean, that's the lesson they learned at the Red Sea when God comes to them and says, you need only to be still and watch the Lord fight for you, right? Well, here, they're fighting, but who's bringing the victory? It so evidently has to be God. Like, you're, you're meaning to tell me that victory comes on whether a guy has his hands up or not? What is, God, that's, God's not doing a parlor trick. He's telling them, if you want genuine victory in your life, raise your hands, Get in a posture of prayer and, and go do your duty. Go fight the battle, but do it knowing that your victory or loss is entirely dependent on the Lord and you need to beseech him. You need to raise your voice to the heavens and ask for the supply lines to come down from the armies of heaven to reinforce you in all your battles here because your strength, your earthly schemes, I mean, Moses tires. So then the next thing, what? It's not just prayer. You need, you need help. Like you're not meant to do this alone. And so, yeah, raise your hands, but there's going to be times where you're too exhausted, where you're too emotionally exhausted, where you're in a spiritual dry spell. You need other people alongside of you that can help raise your hands. I mean, think about the application in that because there are seasons in my life where I just mm. do not want to raise my hands, where I'm not feeling worship, where I'm not feeling strong enough, honestly, to even confront the battle. And so it's not just appealing to the Lord. What he's saying here is you don't just need me. There's going to be seasons where you're too weak to lift your hands. You've got to have a friend on each side that cares enough about you and is in the battle with you to lift your hands. And so do you have that? Like, I mean, that's a, that's a question that we all need to ponder. Like, who is, who's the person that when you're at your wit's end and you don't have it in you to do what you want, when you're depressed, when you can't find any light in the darkness, who's that person? You need that person. God is telling you, you, it's not just the supply line to heaven. You need the people alongside of you that care enough to lift your arms. And so, like, he's teaching this to his people as they're watching. But now on the other side of the cross, we get to see an even more beautiful part of this picture where you have a man who is leading his people, who goes up on a hill, whose arms are outstretched, whole, you know, the wood all involved. And on either side of him, on his left and his right, he's got people and his arms are outstretched. And that brings victory mm. to all the people beneath and protects them particularly by the way why is the battle being fought for the vulnerable for the people who couldn't protect themselves to the ones that were getting picked off by the amalekites like he comes and fights the battle for their redemption and protection and so just the picture if you were to imagine it in your mind's eye it's calvary yeah i mean it's such a clear shadow of what jesus is ultimately going to do on the cross and Joshua, by the way, is down there with the supply line of heaven, mm. totally bringing the victory. Yeah, it's no coincidence that the name Joshua popped up for this story. The first time we see him, yeah, he's fighting a battle on behalf of the weak and vulnerable. Yeah, with, what's, what's, with that name. And what's the last time you're going to see Joshua? What's he doing? It's, it's the same thing. It's the book of Revelation. He's a far greater Joshua is going to come and fight on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable to put the wicked down mm. so that they can have peace. And the fact that it's called Rephidim is such, a, such an upside down picture. Like Jesus is going to bring us a place of peace. <laughs> but Joshua is in a fallen world. He can, he can only point to it. 
And so then we get to the last couple of verses here. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial and a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. These are, you're not going to have to worry about these. These people are not going to harass you forever. But God's like, I want this to be told in the, the ears of Joshua. I want the encouragement given specifically to him that he can win the battle when, when it belongs to the Lord. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so this is, again, one of those things where you find this repeatedly in the Old Testament. You need memorial stones, which is like when you, when you see the Lord have a great victory in your life. Pause. Yeah. Stop. And remember it. Make a record of it because there's going to come a day where the Israelites or where you are going, oh my gosh, what has he led us into? What am I doing here? This does not seem like it's got any kind of good escape or whatever. And you need to be able to look back at those stones, look back at those writings, journal entries, whatever, and to say, oh yeah, he's brought me through far worse than this before. Hmm. Or he's brought me through so many of these kinds of things that I can totally trust that he's going to do it again. Yeah, even the same battle over and over. Yeah. Like next time Joshua's fighting Amalek, he's going to be like, okay, I know this. Then the next time, mm-hmm. the next time. Yeah. Yeah, God is capable of defeating them. When you lift your hands and you have your brothers there holding up your arms. Like that's, that is the formula for a mighty people of God. And I just love the name because it's, you know, so many of the other names of the Lord, the Lord is my provider, the Lord is my peace, the Lord, the Lord is my banner Call you know, the Lord of hosts, the, the armies of heaven. The Lord is my banner is kind of a cool, a cool name because it, it evokes images of going out into war and Christians would do well to recognize that so much of our lives are spiritual wars and to imagine, you know, the Lord is my banner, that constant reminder that he flies above you, that he's, his name is at stake with your life. You can trust in his faithfulness because his name flies over you and he will protect his name. That's just a cool thing to be able to go into life and say, I'm, I'm marching under the banner of Yahweh. And people see that you don't hide that. Yeah. In a military campaign. Yeah, that's it's right. Like you're identifying yourself for the enemy. Good. Yeah. Okay, this is us, guys. Over here. Yep. No hiding. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Yeah, we need more courage in the modern church. Like that, I think that's becoming one of my strongest convictions of late. We need more courage. There are too many people living in fear and allowing wickedness and unrighteousness just totally run the landscape. Mm. And we have the truth on our side. We have the Lord on our sides, but we need to lift our hands and we need to lift each other's arms and we need to let the Lord be our banner and to be bold about it. Cause man, if there was ever a time in my life where the darkness seems to be surging and picking people off like the Amalekites at our, at our weakest points, now's the time to fight. And I sense I sense some optimism there. I think I think people are getting tired tired least. of it. Yeah, I think I think people are 
recognizing that the cost of not being bold now is far greater than the discomfort of being bold now. Yeah, I think it's just like that story that they were in a place called rest, but they had to fight Mm -hmm. in order to get that rest. I feel like a lot of us in our modern culture were thinking, man, I don't... I'm not feeling like this place is we've built this life around rest and I have all these things and I have all this going on and I'm doing things right. I should be at a place of rest. Yeah. But it's not. And mm-hmm. so all of a sudden they're like, oh, there's something going on that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when Solzhenitsyn, who is a who lived in the Russian gulags and was taken captive by the bad tyrants in Russia, you know, he talked about how most people that ended up in the gulags just really wanted to be left alone. You know, they did not want to get dragged into this, but the moment that they realized that their culture was becoming so wicked that they had to do something. It's too late. He he said it was like committed in some sense it was like a suicide of your former life because the moment you spoke up, mm-hmm. it meant that you could never return to the comforts of your anonymity. You could never return to the the days before you took sides and raised a banner. And yet he said, you reach a point where wickedness makes existence so difficult that you would rather fight and lose than to just sit and allow the darkness to swallow everything. Hmm. And I think we're living in a culture where darkness is beginning to make things so uncomfortable and so unlivable, and the fight is now becoming preferable to the silence yeah. and the darkness. And so I think people are finding their courage. And I'm excited about that. I just hope we're wise in in the way that we wield that courage to be gracious and gospel-centered and to remember who our Savior is and that he chases rebels. You know, we don't want to be the one saying, you rebels. Not anymore. (laughs) That did not go well for Moses. But we also want to be bold to speak truth. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Look forward to jumping into Exodus chapter 18 next week, and we hope that you're with us. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.